states in his word in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thanks, Janelle. Hey guys, good morning. How are we doing? Oh man, that was, that was very disturbing. There's only two people doing well. How are you guys doing? Good. It's good to see you guys. Uh, it, it's super fun and uh, good for my soul to be with you. If we haven't met yet, like Ben was saying, my name is Josh Kerr. I'm one of the pastors at Frontline. And uh, my wife and I planted Frontline downtown in 2005. And it's so fun to get to see what God's doing in this church and in your lives. Um, even seeing people that are serving all day, like my sister in the back, who's like on point with all the slides is worshiping Jesus and seeing people running sound worshiping Jesus. It makes my heart really happy. So thanks for letting me be here. Um, a little bit about me real fast. My wife's Nancy. We've been married for almost 25 years. She's the love of my life. And I have two kids that I adore. I've got a daughter who is 21 years old and she's about to wrap up a degree at UCO and just an absolute brilliant, amazing young woman. And then I've got a son named Elijah who's 19 years old and uh, he's in the Marine Corps. He is engaging in deep suffering right now, trying to be a recon Marine so you can pray for him. And uh, it's, fun to, it's fun to be a part of this. And I say all that because the posture and the tone of the next few weeks is a fatherly posture and tone. As we talk about masculine virtue, the last thing that men need is just another angry coach or adolescent angst that thinks that we can shame men or push men or bully men into transformation. So the, the posture and the heart of what we're trying to engage here is the heart of your heavenly father for you, brothers. The heart of your heavenly father. And, and what we see in the story of scripture is that God designed manhood and womanhood to be profound blessings in the world. The result of sin is cursing, it's cursing. Brothers, there's places where you've been cursed in your masculine essence. And my prayer for the next three weeks is that your heavenly father through the finished work of Jesus would bring redeeming, restoring blessing to your essence as a man. And that as you're a man that's being shaped by the love of your heavenly father, that you would become a man of blessing in the world. A man that gives your life away for the blessing and benefit of your sisters and for your children and for your church and for your city. So I wanna pray for you and then we're gonna dive in and do some work. Will you join with me and bow your heads? Uh, Father, it's not, it's not too audacious. It's not out of step with your word or what you've done in the history of the church to ask that you would meet my brothers and sisters in eternal ways in the next couple of minutes. God, I pray um, for the places where my brothers long to hear the words of a father that loves them, that they would hear you, Heavenly Father, speak into the depths of their soul your delight in them, your love for them, your choosing of them, your calling for them. Father, it's also true that right now in this moment, you delight in your daughters. You behold your daughters with infinitely deeper delight than I even love my daughter and I would take a bullet for her. So I pray today as we open your word that you would come and that your presence would be manifested among us. That you would be, bring repentance where we believe lies, 
Um, Lord, I'm asking that you would do a healing work in my sister's lives. Ways in which we as men have fallen short and hurt our sisters, damaged our sisters through either abusive words or violence or abdication. I pray that the next three weeks would be like medicine for their souls. They, they would see the heart of Jesus and that they would receive your ministry in the depths of their being. Lord, I thank you for the things you've done in the women of this church in the last five years. And I ask that this would be a season and a chapter where you would do a work of revival and reformation, reformation among our men. Um, meet us today. Give us faith as we do this. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, so a couple of things as we dive into this. The first thing I wanna know is that the conversation we're gonna have for the next three weeks, two men in the presence of sisters, is not coming out of, it's not coming out of angst or disappointment or anger. It's coming out of, as I said, the heart of your heavenly father to bless you. And it's not to the exclusion of blessing our sisters. In fact, this fall, we're gonna do similar work with the women in our church talking about feminine virtue and the glory and beauty of womanhood. And as we, in, as we engage this topic, like it's not lost on me that this is fraught with danger in 2023. The idea of speaking to the men in the presence of ladies and talking about masculinity itself carries tons of baggage, tons of baggage. And I wanna say that my desire today and my desire for all the pastors of our church is not that we would be shock jocks that love controversy for the sake of controversy. You can get that in a thousand different podcasts tomorrow if that's what you're into. The, the goal is not to be guys that are looking for uh, shocking, quarrelsome fights with people. The goal is to embody 2 Timothy chapter two. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Like, you don't, need, you don't need another angry guy telling you that you don't have what it takes. That's not the heart of your heavenly father. What you need, what you need, brothers, is you need an invitation to encounter the depth of the work of Jesus to shift your identity as sons, as sons. And even as our posture and heart is to encourage, to build up, not to curse and to break down, we also want to avoid the danger of thinking that avoiding these conversations can get us off the hook with the world. To talk about manhood and to talk about womanhood in light of God's word will get people really angry. It'll stir them up. They'll get riled up. Haters will come out of the woodwork. And yet nonetheless, what I want you to see is that if you're gonna follow Jesus, and if you're going to experience the transforming work of God, that transforming work is not something that affects a gender neutral soul. The work of Jesus to redeem you from the inside out is a work for men that goes down to the very depth of your masculine soul. And if you're a woman following Jesus, the work of redemption in your life is a work that goes down to the very core of your feminine soul. You are, you are either a man or a woman to the very depth of your being, and you will be so for all eternity. So what God says, what God says about receiving his grace and being transformed as men and receiving his grace and being transformed as women, not just generic people, is really, really important. And as we talk about this topic for the next three weeks, 
you have to understand that the posture and tone of this fallen world is a posture of enmity. Enmity describes opposition and hostility. And, And there's enmity because of sin between man and God. We hate God's authority. We're all tempted to pretend like we're little gods doing things our way. And the restrictions and boundaries and limitations and invitations of God are seen by us in our fallen state as things that prevent us from living our best life and being full of joy in life. And that enmity between us and God in our rebellion leads to enmity between God and man. God in his righteousness opposes the arrogant sinfulness of man. And that vertical enmity, that opposition and hostility between man and God translates to horizontal enmity where people are all divided up. Our relationships get sideways. Things break. We destroy things that we're supposed to build. And when you take a bunch of sinful people and they build a culture, enmity becomes the tone and the tenor of that culture. It's why we have strife and conflict and hatred. It's why we impugn the motives of other people without knowing their heart. It's why the world is such a hostile, violent place. And if you have even a cursory knowledge of human history, what you find is that there has been historically enmity between men and women. Ways in which we don't know how to love each other and honor one another and receive one another as fellow image bearers of God. And what's happening in our cultural moment in 2023 is that a lot of both modern current radical feminism and modern men's movements are not built on God's word. They're built on enmity that are designed to stir up strife and division instead of worship and love. And today I don't have time to take you through a sketch of modern feminism or to take you through a sketch of the modern men's movements that are going on right now. But I'll just note quickly, first wave feminism was mostly rooted in a good understanding of men and women as equal image bearers of God. And it gained great traction. It was for the most part on the whole of movement that feared God and desired to call men and call women to relate to sisters as equals in dignity, value, and worth. Praise be to God, that's good work. We should celebrate that. But as the movements have progressed and moved forward, you can sum up a lot of the cultural message to women today as women need men like fish need bicycles. And you can sum up a lot of the current messages to men today as misogyny and hostility towards our sisters. And both radical feminism and misogyny are false gospels and dead-end streets. You can't cure misogyny with radical feminism any more than you can cure cancer with another life-threatening disease. And the same thing is true, the same thing is true around misogyny. Both kill the patients if left untreated. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can really bring reconciliation and wholeness. And what we find in the gospel is that God loves men and masculinity. It's his idea. And what we find in the gospel is that God loves women and femininity. And Satan, the father of lies, hates men and masculinity. And he hates women and he hates femininity. And in the grand story of creation, in the very beginning, what we find is that God creates man and woman equal with value, dignity, and worth as image bearers that reflect the glory of God in ways that they share in common as humans and in ways that are unique and glorious to men 
and unique and glorious to women. Though we're equal in value and dignity and worth, we are not interchangeable. To make men and women interchangeable is to miss out on the beauty of God's design in unity and diversity between men and women. The super feisty Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton wrote a poem that got to this years ago. He said this, If I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would come and talk about one being better. The heart of the next three weeks is not to lift up men as better than women. And the heart of what we're going to do with women this fall is not to proclaim that women are innately better or more pious than men. The calling is to receive God's vision as beautiful for both men and women in covenant relationship in the church, fighting together as brothers and sisters on the mission of God. So let me give you a few things to think about. Why, why do this on a Sunday morning? Um, we did a men's event in January. We gathered our guys. We had 600 men show up for two days of prayer and repentance and training. Why do this on Sunday mornings? Why do this in mixed company? Let me give you just a few things to think about before we get to our text. First of all, men are called by God to protect, provide, and initiate. And both the abdication and the abuse of these sacred responsibilities creates gaping holes in the church, in the home, and in the world. And no amount of excellent women's discipleship can fix or resolve the abdication or the abuse of men not receiving their calling to Jesus. And it's been glorious in the course of the last five years to see God raise up women who are using their voices and using their gifts in the life of our church. We're richer for it. We want more of that. More of that. But women's discipleship can be incredibly healthy and whole, but if men's discipleship lags behind, the damage that will be done in the church and in the home is profound. Secondly, number two, there is a long-term, and I believe a demonic strategy in the West to erase masculinity, to erase masculinity. And I want you to think for just a second, what happens in a culture, what happens in a culture to susceptible men, men that haven't had loving present fathers, and men that don't know the love of their heavenly father, and in particular, what happens in a culture to susceptible boys when the primary voices that are speaking about masculinity are telling boys and susceptible men that masculinity itself is toxic? What happens? What happens to a little boy that hears that he's somehow innately broken simply because he's a man? Well, one of two things happens, and we, we see these taking place all over our country. The first is effeminacy, effeminacy among men. Now, I want to be really careful here because I'm not talking about stereotypes. I've known some guys that checked all the boxes for physically imposing men that weren't godly, virtuous men. And I've known men who were profoundly disabled and couldn't even open a jar, whose wives had to open the door for them, who were profoundly masculine, godly men. So what do I mean by effeminacy? Well, femininity is glorious. It's glorious. But effeminacy is a, per a perversion in which men reject masculinity and engage in a parody of the feminine. And the other side of the coin that's equally present 
prevalent in our culture is machismo, machismo. Masculinity is glorious. Macho, ridiculous posturing is perversion. It's a ghoulish mix of enmity towards women and hand-selecting cultural stereotypes that have nothing to do with virtue, masculine essence, or service. Being a man is not being defined by driving a truck, enjoying MMA, or drinking beer, right? We know this because of Jesus. Jesus didn't drive a truck. Jesus walked. Jesus didn't drink beer. He preferred wine. Jesus Jesus only engaged in one physical altercation in the New Testament that we have record of, and uh, it wasn't in an octagon. It was in the temple, and he didn't use Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He used a whip. So those stereotypes, those stereotypes are cultural stereotypes that are unhelpful that don't get to the heart of virtue. The calling today is not to engage in a reactionary effeminacy as men, nor in a reactionary macho posturing as men, but to do work with God's word to ask questions about what does it look like to be a man that gives his life away? What does it look like to reflect the heart of our heavenly father and to look more like Jesus? One author put it like this. He writes, to be a Christian, a man must pick up his masculinity, not lay it down. The real dilemma is not between spirit and body, but between sin's corruption of our sexuality and God's original design. Our sexuality is an essential part of our nature. So much so that a man can be masculine without being virtuous, but he can't be virtuous without being masculine. Uh, To be a man who's following Jesus as an apprentice is to be a man who's discovering what it means to be a man of virtue that looks like Christ. So let me give you two final introductory remarks and then we'll dive in. Why do this with our sisters in the room? Well, there's two big reasons why this conversation should be had in front of our sisters. First of all, men need women. Can I get an amen from some of my sisters? Like, have you not read Lord of the Flies? Men need women. And that's true of wives. The Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. But it's also true, listen, it's also true of moms and sisters and spiritual moms and spiritual sisters. I could tell you a dozen stories right now about moments in the last 30 years of my journey of discipleship where I was at a crossroads and a spiritual mom stepped in and I'm still married because of those women. There have been moments where I've received the grace and the presence of my sisters and that grace and that presence has helped me to desire to follow Jesus as a man. And much of true masculinity is directed outwards outwards for the blessing and benefit of women. And without knowing good women, men tend to not be pulled beyond themselves to grow and to sacrifice. A good woman's presence brings life and her presence helps men to desire to be masculine. So sisters, we need your presence. We need your presence. We need your prayers. We need you to engage the heart of God for your brothers, for your sons, for your husband. We don't, however, need your permission to pursue biblical masculinity because we have God's command. But if we could have your blessing and your delight in the process, even in the midst of our shortcomings and failures, that would be fuel for the fire as we follow Jesus. In addition, not only do men need women, but contrary to what you hear in culture today, women need men. 
Ladies, I so want over the course of the next three weeks for you to both evaluate and reject the lies of sameness and interchangeability. There's a glory to your womanhood that's different than the glory of manhood and vice versa. I so want the single ladies of our church to know what God's word says to men, not so that you would hold out for perfection in a possible future future husband, but so that you would look for commitment and progress with the men that you might consider dating and one day marrying. And I want the ladies in our church to hear God's word to men because the Bible personifies wisdom as a female voice. Lady wisdom in the book of Proverbs speaks to a young son to shape him into being a good man. And what we need, what we need for moms and for wives in our church and even for sisters as they relate to spiritual brothers, we need you to more and more embody the voice of lady wisdom as you speak the truth of God's word. So here's what we're gonna do. Here's the overview of the next three weeks. Today, we're gonna talk about Paul's first two instructions in 1 Corinthians 13 to be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Next week, we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about the second two instructions to act like men, to be strong, to act like men and be strong. And then the final week, we'll do the most important work of all three. We'll talk about Paul's exhortation to let all that we do be done in love. We're gonna talk about how it's impossible to be a man of blessing unless you know the love of your heavenly father through the finished work of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. So here we go. Two things today. What does it mean to be watchful and what does it mean to stand firm in the faith? When Paul says that we're to be watchful, in some ways, this is a summary of the entire story of the Bible. There's two watchmen that have forever altered human history and even the cosmos. And each man and each woman will follow one of the two. The first watchman opened the floodgates to evil by abandoning his post. And the second watchman, at great sacrifice to himself, started the work of redemption and restoration that will eventually unmake all that's evil and wrong. The first watchman is introduced to us in Genesis as a man named Adam. And Adam was given a specific responsibility by God in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, this is really important. Both Adam and Eve were delegated with authority from the living God to exercise authority as vice regents or viceroys on planet Earth. Both Adam and Eve, as equal in value, dignity, and worth, were given authority by God to multiply, to fill the earth, and to take dominion over it. And that command to take dominion doesn't mean domination. It doesn't mean rape and pillage. Dominion, in a biblical sense, is exercising authority to bring order and blessing under the authority of God. And so Adam and Eve were both called by God to function, if you will, as a king and a queen who would together, under God's authority, fill the earth with God's beauty and God's glory. They both had that assignment, but then God, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, he gives Adam a unique responsibility that he didn't give to Eve. He tells Adam that his job is in the garden to work and to keep it, to work and to keep it. Another way to put this would be to cultivate and keep or to build and protect. And the Hebrew word that we get translated as keep here is a word 
that means to guard. It means to protect, to beware, to defend, to function like a bodyguard, to be a gatekeeper, to be a watchman. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, priests were called to do this work of keeping and guarding in the temple, to protect the sanctity of God's temple. And what's fascinating about this is that this responsibility to protect and keep, to cultivate and to guard, to build and to protect that was given to Adam is the very place in which he failed the most profoundly. We're introduced to the serpent, God's enemy, in Genesis chapter 3. And that language of serpent should bring to mind a picture of a dragon. A dragon. And this isn't mere mythology. This really happened. But this character that's introduced into the story of creation, known as the serpent, is a fallen being that hates God. He hates human beings. He's not equal with God. But he does have incredible power and influence, especially through deception. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, that he was more crafty than all the beasts of the field, and he came to the woman in the presence of the man, and he deceived her. He deceived her. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that Eve was deceived and that Adam's sin was of a different kind. Here's what's wild. He tricks Eve into believing that disobeying God would lead to more joy and more beauty for her, her husband, and her children. But the Bible doesn't tell us that Adam was deceived. The Bible tells us that Adam, in essence, abdicates his role to protect. Adam was given authority by God to keep the serpent out of the garden, to fight for his wife, to fight for his future kids, and to fight for that garden sanctuary of God's presence as a warrior and as a watchman. And the Bible tells us that Eve ate of the fruit and then gave to her husband who was not off doing quiet time or a missions trip or a Bible study. He was right with her watching the whole thing go down. And instead of Adam taking his responsibility as a guardian, as a watchman, and kicking the serpent out of the garden in the authority of the living God, he abdicates. He goes quiet. And his refusal to watch, to guard, to protect, in essence, hand the keys, hands the keys of his wife's heart, of his future children's heart, and the keys of creation itself to the serpent, who is described elsewhere in the Bible as the dark Lord of this world. And in that moment, listen, man, in that moment, if you want to understand everything that's broken, understand this, in that moment of abdication and failing to watch, the floodgates were open to evil and the entire world became enemy-occupied territory with three evil enemies that want to unmake everything that's good and beautiful. The Bible describes those enemies as the flesh. The flesh, that's our sin nature that we inherited from our first parents, that we can't love God, we can't obey God, we constantly create false gods. The Bible talks about the enemy of the world. That's the collective systems and philosophies and structures that we build that reflect the kingdom of man, not the kingdom of God. That's our arrogant way of being as humans. And the Bible talks about the devil and the kingdom of darkness, fallen beings that hate God, who are led by one known as the deceiver, who is described in the New Testament as being like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now listen, all around you, you see the results of that failure to keep watch. All around you. You see it in idolatry, you see it in the abuse of women, 
You see it in the objectification of women. You see it in the way that we hurt each other, in the violence that we do, in the groaning of creation, in genocide, in war. You see it all around us. And all that's broken in this world can be traced back to that moment where the first watchman and keeper abdicated his responsibility and opened the doors to all the evil that's around us. And not just external evil, but the internal evil of our flesh that's right here inside of our ribcage. Now, what's crazy about this moment is this is the beginning. We only get, we only get three chapters into Genesis before everything breaks. And yet in this moment, we see the grace of the living God who instead of abandoning us or turning his back or destroying all of humanity, he makes a promise. Even as God is cursing the man, the woman, and the serpent for their rebellion and disobedience, in Genesis 3.15, he gives a ray of profound hope that becomes the seed that grows into the fullness of the gospel. Listen to what God says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Here's what God's saying. In the fullness of time, the seed of the woman, a man born from woman, is going to be a second watchman. And that second watchman is going to sacrifice himself in such a way that he's going to be deeply wounded in his heel, but he is going to exercise his authority to vanquish evil. He's going to crush the skull of the serpent. Hey, friends, in the fullness of time, the second watchman came. And what Jesus does throughout his, lifely, his earthly ministry and what Jesus does through his cross and his resurrection is he decisively defeats the flesh as he, the sinless son of God, resists temptation and dies in our place for our fleshly rebellion. He stands in opposition to the kingdoms of this world that want to elevate man as God and he brings the kingdom of God in humility and lowliness. And then he stands toe-to-toe with Satan and the forces of evil as he resists them and as he faces them in their own turf, rising from the dead. What I want you to see, brothers, before we go any further, is that to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus, is to receive his finished work in such a way that you are empowered to exercise your God-given, your God-created, and your God-redeemed vocation to once again be watchmen, to be keepers and to be cultivators, to see the garden that God's given you, to see the weapons that God's given you, to engage in spiritual conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And sisters, we'll get to this. That doesn't mean that you don't engage in spiritual warfare and resist the flesh. You certainly do. But there's ways in which Jesus is directly at work to keep the garden of the home and the church and society through sacrificial, self-giving, watchful obedience through the lives of godly men. And this does not mean, this does not mean that you have to be into guns or MMA, certainly doesn't justify bad attitudes. But to be a follower of Jesus is to be awakened to the struggle, to know that you're not a tourist, you're in a war zone, and you are called to fight, to fight with the flesh, the world, and the evil one as a man of God. And there's this powerful picture in Nehemiah chapter four of what that might look like. Uh, It's a moment of revival and renewal where God sends a man named Nehemiah back to the ruins of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had fallen into captivity because of their disobedience and sin. The wall was fallen down and these godly people on the wall 
are called to do something really crazy. They're called to build with a shovel in one hand. That's the work of cultivation. And they're called to fight and keep watch with a sword in their other hands. That's the work of keeping. And that work of a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other hand is a powerful picture of what it means to be a man who follows Jesus. To both fight and to build, to build and to fight. To fight and build in your own life. Brothers, uh, however old you are in this room, you are called to receive from your heavenly father both a sword and a shovel to, to, to start building your life on the foundation of Jesus. You're called to fight for your brothers. You're called to fight for your sisters. You're called to fight for your wife, your kids, and your church. And here's what's wild. God himself, in all of his glory and might, could do all of that fighting and building without you, but he has ordered creation in such a way that he delights in doing it through you. If you don't believe me, just take some time this week and read Ephesians chapter 5. There's ways that Jesus wants to love and serve and bless your wife that he has designed to do only through you. There's ways in which God wants to form, shape, and launch your kids into the world that he wants to do through you as a watchman and as a keeper. And what's wild about all this, what's wild about all this is just how often you and me as men are tricked into falling asleep in the midst of the battle. I don't know if you ever got in a fight in high school or middle school, but can you imagine, can you imagine someone coming to assault you, to beat you up, and the entire time that they're punching you and kicking you and knocking you on the ground, you thought you were having a uh, conversation instead of an actual fist fight? Like, can you imagine getting beat up and you didn't know it was a fight? Can you imagine how bad you would get trashed if you didn't know that you were in a fight? And the problem with many men in the church today is that we are absolutely clueless to the fact that you are in a fight, you are in a war zone, and you're called to wake up in Jesus and to feel the sword in one hand and a shovel in the other hand and to take responsibility as a watchman on the wall, to engage and to fight. I want to pause here for just a second because a lot of the pushback and resistance that you might feel in your heart connects to the ways that we've already failed to do this the ways we've blown it, the ways we've fallen short, the ways we haven't loved our wives like we wanted to, the ways that we haven't resisted the flesh, the ways that the enemy's gotten it right so many times in our lives. And on top of our own failures, there's the ways in which we've been named, even by the best of dads. Isn't it amazing that you can have a really good dad who can still at the same time unintentionally give you names that haunt you your whole life? How much more so with an absent dad or a violent dad? The name of weakling, loser, failure. And what can start to happen is we have all this shame inside of us and all this guilt that we're aware of and all this fear and we have all these names that we think define the essence of who we are and those things, those things become profound obstacles when we start to hear the calling of Jesus to engage in the fight for those around us. One writer put it like this, many men feel as if they were involved in a night battle in a jungle against an unseen foe. Voices from the surrounding darkness shout hostile challenges. Men are too aggressive, too soft, too insensitive, too macho, too power mad, too much like little boys, too wimpy, too violent, too obsessed with sex, too detached to care, too busy, too rational, too lost to lead, too 
dead to feel. Exactly what we're supposed to be is not clear. There's this really interesting moment in uh, Ridley Scott's 2005 film, <clears throat> The Kingdom of Heaven. And in this moment, Jerusalem's surrounded, it's about to be overrun, and all the knights but one knight have abandoned the city. And what's left inside the city is one knight and all the peasants who have never received in their culture any invitation to valor and to responsibility. And there's this moment where one of the noblemen comes to the one knight that's in the city and he says, what are we gonna do without knights to defend Jerusalem? And the knight looks out at this like ragtag group of people that in that culture were considered the bottom of the bottom, grave diggers and peasants, the poorest of the poor. And he tells them, every man capable of bearing arms, kneel. And all these pathetic peasants that have been looked down on by the nobles and the knights of the society, they all take a knee and that knight leads them in taking oaths. And then he says this crazy thing to him. He says, rise as knights, rise as knights. And the noble that was there is incredulous. He's like, do you really think that declaring men knights will make them better fighters? And the one knight that's standing in the walls of the city says, yes, I believe that absolutely. My point in telling you that is that your job, brothers, as a watchman that's engaging in vigilant, cultivating, building, and fighting is not something that you do in your own ability or based on your own track record or through your own capacity to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. What we find is that Paul's exhortation to be watchmen is connected to the second thing he says, that we are to stand firm in the faith. The way that we fight for our family, for our kids, for our church, for our brothers, the way that we resist temptation is not by sticking our chests out and pretending that we've got what it takes apart from our father. The way you engage that fight is to realize that there's an inheritance that's given to you from your heavenly father through the finished work of Jesus that changes your identity, the very essence of who you are and leads to the action God's called you to engage. If you think that you can create, control, and build your own identity, you're constantly, you're constantly gonna be trying to earn and stack up and to get in God's good graces. But to stand firm in the faith is this backward, amazing movement of grace where through the finished work of Jesus, your father comes to you, he gives you a new name, he gives you a new inheritance, and then he calls you in that name and in that inheritance to live your life from that deep place of identity as a watchman on the wall that engages for the blessing and benefit of those around you. To hear your father's voice. To hear your father's voice renaming the places that you've received names like failure or weakling or loser or addict. To hear your father in heaven speak a name to you is to have everything in your life change. And listen, what happens to the work of Jesus is nothing less than that. In Judges chapter six is this moment where there's a guy who's just totally beat down. He's the weakest guy in the weakest family in Israel who happens to be one of the weakest nations oppressed by their enemies. And he's hiding from his enemies. He's down in a wine press. He's threshing the grain. He's dirty. He's terrified. He's shaking at, in his boots. And, and the angel of the Lord, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, the angel of the Lord comes to him and he says something to him that changes everything. 
He says, hail, valiant warrior. And from that place of being renamed by the one who called everything into existence out of nothing, he gets launched into his calling to reflect the work of Jesus as one that fights for his neighbors and fights for his city. Hey, brothers, what you need more than anything is not just a New Year's resolution to be more vigilant. What you need is an encounter with the living God through the gospel where you believe the name you've been given. Your father, your father in heaven loves you, sent his son to die for you, chose you, has sanctified you, and is going to work through you for you to be his voice and his hands and his feet for the blessing and the benefit of your family, your church, and your city. What's wild about the solid ground on which we're called to be watchmen is that it is, it is unshakable, unlike all the things we're tempted to build on. Hey, brothers, like especially young brothers in the room, if you try to build your life on the foundation of performance, you're gonna spend your whole life fighting from quicksand because you will fail in this life. If you try to build your life on the foundation of pleasure and ease and comfort, you're gonna build your life on quicksand because God's called you to sacrifice. If you try to build your life on the foundation of the approval of other people, what people say about you, like you're always up for vote and sticking your finger in the air to see which way the wind's blowing, you're constantly gonna be fighting from quicksand, but the solid foundation of the faith that you're called to build your life on is bedrock. Jesus said, those that hear my word and act on them are like the man who built this house on the rock and the storms came and it stood. The foundation that God's called you to build on is high ground. It's solid and it's high. Like we live in a Western context where one of the enemy's greatest strategies is to help us believe that he doesn't exist, right? Uh, if you've read Screw Tape Letters, that's an insightful piece of advice from an older demon to a younger demon. And in our rationalistic culture, like we just don't believe that there are invisible forces shaping all the things around us. You get out of this context though and you'll, you'll encounter grotesque displays of evil. I've seen terrifying things and felt tangible evil in places all over the world. If you think that you could stand before Satan or a demon and in your own strength and ability engage in that fight with any hope of surviving, you're crazy. But to stand on the foundation of what Jesus has done is to stand on the high ground of who he is, his authority, his power, his name, his goodness, his presence. And, and to stand as a watchman on the faith once for all delivered is to also stand on holy ground because God's with you. Brothers, there's this beautiful moment in the book of Daniel where uh, three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go against the edict of the king and refuse to bow down to an idol that he builds, which is an interesting picture of some of the kinds of struggles with the world that we're talking about. And in their refusal to bow down to the idol, uh, the king declares that a furnace should be heated, I believe seven times hotter than normal, and that those three men be thrown in. It, it's so hot that the guards that take those three guys to throw them into the furnace, they're killed when they open the doors of the furnace. And they throw these three men into the furnace, and the king has this really interesting line. He turns to the noblemen around him, and he says, I, I thought we threw three men into the fire. And the guys are like, yeah, we, we threw three in. And the king says, but I see four, and one of them is like, a son of the gods in his appearance. 
This is another moment where it's most likely a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Here's what's happening. The battle that they were called to engage in was not one that they did alone. It's one they did in the very presence of God. Hey, brothers, the struggles that you're fighting with sin are not struggles that you're called to fight on your own and then come back to report to God. Your struggle to love your wife is not something that you do on your own based on your own ability to work up and manufacture love. As you encounter the presence and love of God, you're called to give that away. As you engage, as you engage your job and seek to be present and love people and be salt and light, that's not something you do because you're just a morally superior human being. No Christians are morally superior. That, that's like step one of becoming a Christian is realizing we're not. You do so in the very presence of the living God with the Holy Spirit inside of you. So week one, week one, if there's anything I want you to hear, it's the calling of God to just wake up, wake up. Like life is short and the stakes are high and the stakes of being a man are really high, not just for you, but for your brothers, for your family and for your church. Stakes are high, wake up. Don't be a tourist in a war zone wearing Bermuda shorts and a Hawaiian shirt, snapping pictures when snipers are trying to kill those around you. Wake up, wake up and realize that the battle that you're called to fight against the world, the flesh and the devil is a battle you're called to fight on the foundation of the finished work of Jesus where the Father's given you a new identity that you get to live your life from. The love of God that's unshakable. What I'd love to do as we close today is if you're willing, brothers, I wanna pray for you and I wanna ask your sisters to pray for you. So if you're a man in the room and you're willing, will you stand? And I wanna invite everybody to take a second and close your eyes. And brothers, if you're comfortable, would you hold your hands out like you're receiving a gift? There are names of cursing that every man in this room, we all have been given. Related to our own sins, related to the sins of others. There's places, even as you think about how you wanna treat a woman as you date her, that those names come up and you feel like you can't do it. Certainly with husbands and dads in the room, like, Some of us have been given the name of shame. You'll never be loved. Some of us have taken on the name of too weak to fight. For some in the room, the name that you've been given is a name connected to failure where you believe the lie that anytime you engage, you'll, you'll break everything. You'll just make a mess. You'll just screw it up. Hey, all of those names that the enemy wants to hang around your neck got hung on Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. He bore that failure. He bore that shame. And because of his death in your place, if you've trusted in him, your father in heaven, the living God, names you beloved son. Jesus says the unique only begotten son 
died on a cross and was raised from the dead so that you would become an adopted son and share in Jesus' inheritance. And so it's cinematic and it can be a little cheesy and we can snicker at it because we're cynical. But that little picture rises nights that changes the way that those men fight. That's just a little picture of a far deeper, more profound reality. Your father has called you to engage the battle in the identity, power, and strength of Jesus Christ. To fight from love, not for it. So God, I just want to ask right now that you would do deep work to remove those names that are lies. Father, I thank you that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So will you fill these men and fill me afresh today with the delight and joy of knowing that we have a Father who loves us. Hey, brothers, before we close in prayer with no one looking around, here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy but true. One day you're gonna stand face to face with Jesus Christ and you'll be glorified. You'll be without sin. Everything that's still bent will be made straight. But here's the scandal of your identity right now. The Father's love for you on that day will not be greater than his love for you right now. He loves you. So Father, I'm asking um, that the struggles in this room, the struggles to love our wives, to honor our sisters, to fight against sin, to believe the truth of your word, I'm praying that these would be struggles we would see as being fought on the holy ground of your presence on the solid ground of Jesus' finished work and on the high ground of his authority. Pray that you would give good gifts to these men. And Father, I bless them as a brother. I bless them in your name. I bless them. Their hands are needed. Their voices are needed. Their hearts are needed. Their souls are needed. So I pray that you would awaken them, awaken them and lead them from this place with a fresh sense of their vocation as men. And I, Lord, even as I pray for the men, I thank you for my sisters. I pray that you would bless them today. Thank you, Father, that your love and delight in them, the name you have for them, is no less splendid and glorious than the name you have for your sons. Thank you that you choose them, you want them, you delight in them, you enjoy them. So I pray as we come to the Lord's Supper that you would um, feed us on your goodness. I wanna invite my sisters to stand and as we get to the close today,